Very warm welcome. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. I'm Director of the Institute for Government, and we're delighted to have here Sir Mark Walpert, um, who is going to talk to us about a range of things, including his new brief as Chief Executive uh, Designate. Particularly, actually. <laughs> uh, well, UK, UK research more, more, uh, more generally. The, um, but head of the newly formed UK Research and Innovation, UKRI. And there has been much, much talk about this in academic and in government circles and in uh, business circles about what this is going to mean for UK research going forward and for the public funding of that research and innovation. He was, of course, government chief scientific advisor and head of the government office uh, for science uh, for four years until last year, though it was, a, it was a long transition out of that. You kept, in fact, doing two jobs at once, as you were Indeed. saying, preparing for this, this new role as well. And he's also been director of the Wellcome Trust, professor of medicine and head of the division of medicine at Imperial College, and um, uh, is a fellow of the, of the Royal Society just down the road. Mark is going to kick off with, uh, you said, four slides, but about uh, you know, five or six minutes of talking about this. Uh, um, I will fire some questions at him, but I'm sure there's a lot of questions from you, and we will get briskly to those. Mark, very warm welcome. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you, Bronwyn. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so I thought I would start with the fact that form should follow function. Um, and it's just worth remembering that the formation of UK Research and Innovation followed a report by Sir Paul Nurse that was delivered and published in November 2015. Um, and I think it's fair to say that quite a lot has changed since then. Um, and the, but I think the arguments that he put at the time for the creation of uh, UK Research and Innovation uh, were, are even more salient now than they were then. Uh, so what is the... UK research and innovation landscape needing to respond to. Um, and I think that there are four big changes that are global in their nature. So the first is the nature of the research and innovation challenges that we collectively face. And most of them at the end of the day are driven by the changing demographics of the planet, uh, with uh, young populations in sub-Saharan Africa, in India, in many parts of South America, um, with all of the drivers that that very large bulge in a young population poses, people who are ready, able, wanting to find the best work, wanting to move around the world. Um, and then we have the position in Europe, in North America, in Japan, of ageing populations uh, where the dependency ratio of the old in relation to the young is changing, uh, driving challenges around provision of pensions, uh, lifelong learning, the need to work longer. And of course the demographic changes of simply having 7.5 billion people on the planet, climate change, pollution, and all of this poses a series of research and innovation questions and opportunities that can only happen if they're conducted in a multidisciplinary way. So the traditional boundaries between disciplines are no longer as important as they were. Um, secondly, the world of research itself is changing, the tools are changing, things like this, which is the Atlas Detector, which no single country would be able to afford, but also the all-pervasive nature of big data, which started with astronomy but now affects everything. Thirdly, in the world of innovation, the world of business is changing with a, conversion, a convergence between um, uh, computer science, material science, biological science, and always the importance of art and design. And one of the big opportunities for the UK is our ability to humanise 
our engineering, our science, our technology through very good art and design. Um, and the fourth change, which I think is also important, is the change in societies around the world with the rise of populism, uh, challenges to the values of the Enlightenment, to truth, and that, I think, means and a mistrust in establishments. And so if we are going to be able to uh, develop the extraordinary uh, science, engineering, technology, social sciences, arts and design, humanities, um, then we need to engage with publics more effectively than we ever have done before. So this is a context for what Paul Nurse uh, recommended, which was basically building on strength, but bringing our seven research councils Innovate UK, the UK's innovation agency, together under a single umbrella so that we can have the strengths of the domain expertise and the disciplinary strengths, but in an environment where the whole can be distinctly more than the sum of the parts. And as one of our board members put it, to show that we're much more than simply a confederation. It is the opportunity to work seamlessly across the different organisations. Now, one of the other strengths of the UK's research system, particularly in higher education, is our dual support system. And so, as everyone knows, I think a part of the dual support system, Research <coughs> England, has been put into um, UK research and innovation. And actually, that gives us great analytic strengths in terms of monitoring the sustainability of the system as a whole. Uh, but all of these organisations are reserved for the UK as a whole. And I was in Scotland yesterday launching UK Research and Innovation in Scotland. Um, and uh, Research England will work very, very closely and is working closely with the Scottish Funding Council, the Welsh Funding Council and the Northern Ireland Executive. And those relationships are working extremely well. Um, but the critical issue is that all of this is for the whole of the uh, United Kingdom. So our objectives, what are we about? Um, well, ultimately what we're about is um, uh, the money that we have is all our money. It's taxpayers' money. Um, and so uh, we're about ultimately delivering the cultural and social benefits of research and knowledge. So, oops, oops, an enriched, healthier, more resilient, more sustainable society. And also the economic benefits of knowledge. And so what we're about is pushing the frontiers of human knowledge and understanding, but as it were, not stopping there, but making sure that we move from those frontiers of knowledge to deliver that economic impact, social prosperity, <coughs> cultural benefits. We can only do that if we have two sets of ingredients. The first set of ingredients is talented people. And the second set of ingredients is the environment and the infrastructure. So it's about being international, being global in our outlook, recognizing that the best research, the best innovation is a team sport. It brings together talented people from diverse backgrounds and diverse nationalities. Uh, it's about people, as I've already said. It's about demonstrating that we are trustworthy. And we will do quite a lot of work on the culture of research and innovation to make sure that we support people in the strongest possible way. Uh, we will take equality, diversity and inclusion very seriously indeed. And then it's about having the right infrastructure 
And that's infrastructure of all sorts. So e-infrastructure, electronic infrastructure, which of course underpins modern society, but also physical infrastructure. And much of that will be inevitably in collaboration across the UK and internationally as well. And we can only do all of that if we ourselves are a decent organization. And we're working very hard on that. Um, this is our list of early priorities, and I'm always very careful to point out because people look at these things with a very beady eye and say, you know, why was my subject there? This is in alphabetical order. <laughs> and it starts with four ins. So it starts with the Industrial Strategy Challenge Fund. Um, and the good news, of course, around the creation of UK research and innovation is that we are it's being associated with the largest uplift in the public funding for research and innovation for well over 40 years. And so our budget is going from uh, somewhere between six and a half billion a year up by two billion a year over the next three years. So this is a very significant uplift. Um, a, a component of that is devoted to the Industrial Strategy Challenge Fund, and that does what it says on the tin. And the two key words are industrial, um, so we need industrial pull, and it's about challenges. It's not about salami-sliced small programs. Um, and we've had two ways of those announced, um, and the uh, uh, competition for the third wave, the preliminary applications, has just closed. And just to start managing expectations, there were more than 250 preliminary applications. Um, but I think it will be important, because we certainly won't be able to fund all of those or anything like but I think getting the, the, the communities on the front foot, I want to have a, a menu in the pocket, as it were, of UK research innovation of the best possible ideas, because we should have the best ideas if we're going to get the money that we need to me, support research and innovation. Uh, the second is the infrastructure roadmap, led by Andrew Thompson, the executive chair of STFC. Um, and that was launched at the Royal Society uh, a, a couple of months ago. Um, and he will be looking with advisors out to 2030 to look at our infrastructure needs. And I should say that we are only going to be successful if we work with a very wide stakeholder community. We're not about some sort of massive, monolithic, uh, top-down organisation. Uh, we're about actually consulting widely and making the most of uh, all of the inputs that we get. Um, innovation commercialisation is clearly very important. Innovate UK is inside uh, UK research innovation, and it is business-facing. It's important to recognise that. And so engagement with business and industry as stakeholders is very important. And it's worth emphasising that, of course, you know, when we look at the economy and the R&D intensity of the economy, 80% um, of our economy is in the service sector. And that doesn't tend to think about R&D in quite the same way as traditional manufacturing. Uh, international collaboration, that's the fourth of the ins, is absolutely crucial. And, of course, uh, Paul's report in November uh, 2015, the referendum in June the next year, and that's why I think a strong voice for research and innovation in the UK is as important as it's ever been. Um, and we are engaging very widely internationally. Um, uh, the importance of place. And one of the things, and one of the great privileges of the jobs I've had over the last 15 years is that I've spent a lot of my time out and about visiting around the UK, around the world. And Andrew Whitty did a report some years ago looking at regional uh, strengths. And 
um, when it comes to regional innovation and growth, it isn't, as it were, about um, plonking down a nanotechnology centre in every hamlet in the UK. It's about identifying the fact that there are focus strengths in very many parts of the UK, and we need to build upon those. And it's where you have a convergence of three things. Business strength, coupled with universities, and it typically is universities that have corresponding academic and educational strengths, and then local government that's supportive. And when you have that trio, that's a good recipe for creating and building clusters. Um, the next thing, and I'll finish in just a minute, Bronwyn, because no, no, I know no, you no, want to no, go no, to the no, conversation. No no, 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 I wasn't looking with that kind of expression. No, so okay. No, you look fairly benign, I must yeah, say. Yeah, yes. yeah, good. Um, <laughs> I, I'm capable of looking otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the next is the Strategic Priorities Fund. Um, that's being developed at the moment. And again, what it will do is um, several things. It will enable us, firstly, to support the type of programme that wouldn't typically get through a classical grant process for a fellowship, a project grant, a programme grant. Uh, it will enable collaborations, particularly uh, interdisciplinary collaborations, but collaborations of every sort. It will actually respond to... Um, uh, one of the Haldane's other principles, which is not so well remembered as the sort of classic Haldane principle, which is experts should decide on who to allocate grants to, the principle of peer review. Haldane, and his report was 100 years ago, written in 1918, said that it was very important that those that were funding the sort of general research, as opposed to uh, the specific research and development funded by government departments, should talk to government departments to see what their research needs are. And government departments are now producing their statements of research interest. And that's a very good opportunity for the research and innovation community to look at these. And uh, there's the opportunity for using the Strategic Priority Fund for supporting some of the work around that. But I think it maybe makes another point which I think is important for us, and that is that good funding agencies are more than letterboxes where you drop grant applications. They should be catalytic. And our job is to be catalytic. It is to work with the community to help people to develop ideas that they might not have done spontaneously by just dropping uh, a grant applications in response to uh, general calls. And a very important part of that, of course, is convening, which is why it's important to get out there. And I'm pleased that Andrew Thompson, who's one of our executive chairs, who's the head of the AHRC, is sitting here amongst us. We've got an outstanding group of um, uh, executive chairs. In fact, we'll be announcing uh, the head of um, EPSRC very shortly. So we'll have all of our Research Council um, executive chairs in place. Um, and our job is to get out, talk to people, and catalyze. Um, supporting research and research talent, well, I've already said that. You know, ultimately, we are a people business. It's about identifying talented individuals from all backgrounds and supporting them. And it's about individuals, it's about teams. It's about recognising that in the process from research to innovation to products, which, of course, is not a linear process, it goes in every direction, we need different sorts of people. You need researchers, you need innovators, you need entrepreneurs. And ultimately, of course, to scale up businesses, you need particularly strong management as well. Um, and, of course, it is about supporting societal impact. I've already said 
about the importance of public engagement. Public engagement is a function that we're taking on from uh, our parent department, which is Bayes, a business energy and industrial strategy. And I think that public engagement is something that we need to take collectively very seriously. And to put out a challenge, I think we're extremely good at talking to ourselves. Uh, but I don't think we're as good as we could be in engaging with much broader publics. And I think that's a big challenge for us, actually. Um, and finally, uh, working towards 2.4%. So alongside the additional money, a government has come up with a commitment to move towards the UK spending 2.4% of its uh, GDP on R&D uh, towards the, the, the latter half of uh, the next decade. And that's moving from uh, about 1.68% today, which, of course, as everyone here will know, is well below the OECD average. Um, but that will require sustained analysis, sustained work, and we need to recognise that, on average, two-thirds of a country's uh, contribution to R&D comes from the private sector. And so the public sector alone is not a substitute for that. We have to actually make sure that public sector investment does actually leverage private sector investment, because otherwise we're not going to have the maximum impact. So starting with form, I've got to, oh, sorry, starting with function, I've got to form, and these are some of our challenges. Thank you for attention. Over to the conversation bit. Thank you. Mark, thanks very much indeed for taking us right into the, uh, the first uh, days, if you like, of UKRI. Right. So if I ask you, uh, how much, if you took the research councils beforehand and you had them all up there in their circles, and looked at their, their, their array of work. Mm. How much does, is, is there going to be a change, looking at the balance of work, say, in the first few years of, of, of them under UKRI? Well, I mean, the first thing to say is that we are dealing with a, you know, very large organisations, and they don't shift yes. overnight. Yeah. Um, but what I, uh, it, it's quite interesting, because, I mean, we are technically one month and two days old. Um, mm. But actually, we had our first shadow executive board, and I think Andrew was there, uh, pretty much a year ago. Mm. Um, and it was absolutely, and I was sort of, I mean, to be honest, I was slightly nervous the first time because how were people going to react? But actually, the executive chairs have come along absolutely enthusiastically, and mm. I think we're already working together as a team, working across the research councils in ways that didn't happen before. Mm. But I don't want to over-exaggerate. This is an evolution. Uh, it's not that the research councils didn't collaborate with each other before they did, mm. um, but there were... Uh, uh, organisational mm. barriers to it, mm. and also some cultural barriers. Yeah. I, I take that point about collaboration, but um, what I'm getting at is whether the balance of work is, is going to shift, okay. whether well, the priorities of right, the that's, work so itself. That's, that, that's, a, that's a, 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 a slightly different question, and I think you can look at that in two parts. So one of the jobs of um, the board of uh, UK Research and Innovation, and I should have said a bit about the board, it's an excellent board, you will know who they are, it's chaired by Sir John Kingman, uh, one of the jobs of the board is to recommend to ministers, and it is ministers that decide on the allocations, the high-level allocations between the councils. Our job is to advise to ministers on what those allocations should be. Um, and uh, it is something that we need to think about very carefully. Uh, but it's not something where, again, we're suddenly going to have a, a sort of knee-jerk reaction and recommend massive shifts. It is a very interesting and actually rather difficult question 
how much resource you allocate to uh, the Arts and Humanities Research Council versus the Economic and Social Researchers Council versus the <coughs> Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council. So we will think about that very carefully. Um, and things like the Strategic Priorities Fund, I think, will be quite helpful in a way, because with new money, it's uh, rather easier to shift allocations. And to be honest, creating a new organisation in the presence of increased funding is a jolly sight easier than doing it in the presence of reduced funding. Um, and so... Um, very, very, very nicely put. As, as you say, <laughs> it, is, um, it is ministers who make, ultimately make these decisions. Yes. So obviously you, you, but they you do advise it on the basis of recommendations. Yeah, no, yes. no, absolutely. But I, and I, I don't mean to caricature what they are thinking. On the other hand, we have Brexit hanging over all this, yeah. and we have ministers of all types going around saying, look, global Britain, um, doesn't that amount to a pressure or kind of, you know, drumbeat for more spending on STEM uh, research as opposed to social sciences? Uh, no, I don't think that's true. Um, um, it, it's, you know, I, I've spent the last five years working in the space of evidence-based policy, and of course that was Haldane's first principle, actually, that he thought the government would operate better if it took account of evidence. Mm. Um, something I'm sure is engraved in the Institute for Government. Um, we make so, that point. And, oh. So, so um, I think that we know that all of scholarship, I mean, I, it's a pity we don't have a word quite like Wissenschaft. Mm. It's all important. Mm. Um, and it's quite interesting, actually, in Scotland yesterday, where they've just introduced minimum alcohol unit pricing. Um, the work of Virginia Berridge at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine on mm. the history of um, taxation and pricing in relation to alcohol consumption is very important evidence. And she has a very long time series looking at alcohol consumption in relation to what mm. it costs. And so that's history contributing mm. to mm. public policy. Um, uh, social sciences, um, uh, administrative data research mm. is absolutely critical. That's a responsibility mm. of the ESRC. Mm. Um, so, uh, but I mean, so I think it, I think oh, it is I'm, all I'm delighted to hear that. And I think yeah. many people uh, will be as well that you intend mm. to keep that kind of balance absolutely. going. You had industrial strategy way up your. Uh, yes, because it was the first of the um, uh, inns, as it were. It, yeah. was, it was alphabetical order. Yeah. But, but yeah. I mean, you're asking yeah. a perfectly legitimate question. Yeah. And, um, and actually, if you look at the, the spend that's coming as part of that uh, two billion, there is a significant component of it that is for talent, for people. Mm. Uh, but there is a significant component around the Industrial Strategy Challenge Fund. Um, and so I think that the innovation funding as an overall proportion has increased slightly already. Mm. Mm. Um, but, I mean, again, it's important to look at that. And um, there's the sort of application-inspired fundamental research. And so if you look at the Faraday challenge, which was the sort of prototype for the industrial strategy challenges, the origin of that, funnily enough, was a group of electrochemists mm. who came along to um, uh, government and said, build us an institute <coughs> to do electrochemistry. Mm. And mm. the immediate question is, why? Um, and, um, but I mean, it, it's, it, it's clear, if you like, that there was there a very good conjugation between a group of researchers who wanted to do something about batteries mm. and actually a need for battery research because there are all sorts of operational challenges with the development of batteries around uh, their stability, how mm. rapidly you can charge them, what mm. happens to the materials mm. in them. These are really interesting research questions. And so because there's some application behind it, it doesn't mean the research is any less interesting. Um, when I was the government chief scientist, uh, looking, look at all some of the issues that government departments are facing. DEFRA, 
Um, bovine tuberculosis, there's all sorts of extraordinarily interesting questions about uh, bovine and indeed human tuberculosis, which uh, have still proved very intractable to both antibiotic treatment and uh, vaccine development, actually. Um, uh, everywhere you look, there are really interesting research questions. Uh, Zika, Ebola, where yeah. the anthropologists played an enormous role as well as the infectious disease microbiologists. Mm. No, those, those are all uh, very good examples. There's been, I, I just want to pick up on that, in the sense there has been a lot of emphasis in the last decade or so on academics having, uh, trying to have more impact on the, of their work yeah. or apply more or indeed uh, liaise more with government. We're doing a project with the AHRC on, uh, on this. Um, where do you think that's got to? Um, well, I think it's going in the right direction. I think, again, this is a very big and long-standing cultural shift. Um, when I started as a, a, a young academic in the sort of early 80s, in medicine, it really wasn't done to work with industry. I mean, there's been a complete transformation, and that's over the last you to keep it 20 pure. years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, why would anyone not want their work to have impact? I mean, at the very least, if you do something, you'd like it to be read, wouldn't you? Um, mm-hmm. uh, it, it, it's, it's, research isn't finished until it's been communicated, and we should communicate it much better. Uh, so... I just think it's sort of slightly ridiculous, the idea that there's something wrong with impact. We should all want impact from the work we do, otherwise why do we do it? Um, it may be cultural impact, it may be impact amongst, um, uh, with other researchers, but impact, impact does actually matter. Um, and uh, it seems to me that uh, re- introducing it as an explicit factor into the REF uh, was a good thing, and of course, as a result of um, Nick Stern's review, uh, the uh, proportion of importance will go up to 25%. So I think that's a good thing, actually. Um, and why, if you were doing research in material science, would you not want your material science to be applied? Um, you're certainly on this one preaching to the converted. Uh, not just me, but I suspect many, many people here. Good, uh, when you asked the yeah, question. Yeah, I did. <laughs> I did. As, um, as I said earlier, uh, the word Brexit is hanging over yes. all this. What does this do to researchers, academics, funding? Well, um, I mean, I think there's something important about leadership at a time of uncertainty. And I think if you look at uh, all of the government documents that have been around research, innovation and Europe, they have been pushing towards... Uh, negotiating a very strong form of association with European programs going forward. Uh, I mean, clearly there are fundamentally two components that matter. There's the people, and of course you go around British universities and there are people from all parts of the world. Uh, But because of our geographical proximity, because of our partnership (coughs) in European programs, there's obviously a strong predominance of European researchers. Um, I think one's got to sort of read what's on the, the, uh, in, the, in the documents and believe it. So I think that the environment for European researchers will be very strong um, in uh, British research and innovation as, it, uh, as for all nationalities. Uh, the second issue then is obviously uh, actual participation in European programmes where there is a very strong push from UK researchers and innovators mm. and equally there's a pretty strong pull from uh, our European counterparts. And, you know, my general experience, and I suspect all of our general experiences, is that when we go to Europe, um, when they finish being cross with us, as though it was our individual fault, as it were, um, and I always make the point, we each had a vote, um, then they want us to remain part of the European 
programs around research and mm. innovation. So, uh, but it is a very complicated uh, jigsaw. Mm. Uh, the mm. level of political negotiation is as senior as it gets. And we all know that if you shove a piece in a jigsaw the wrong way, it sometimes uh, screws up putting the other pieces in. So mm. we'll need to wait and see. Mm. My sense is that that, that that is right, and the scientific community, particularly in academics, got it might be very fast out of the uh, blocks in making their case, yeah. and, that, and that's registered. Um, where I guess I, I get more concern is about um, uh, private investment and, and companies here. And you mentioned, I mean, rightly, the figure that people should, should remember that, that two thirds yeah. of, uh, of the investment um, of the work here is coming from in the private sector. Yes, I, I, I mean, we clearly are going through a period of uncertainty, and I think that, you know, looking through the lens of UK research innovation, we have to do everything we can to make sure that, insofar as it's within our capabilities, we provide and we use our funds uh, to support the best research and innovation environment. But there mm. are some things that are actually outside our uh, domain and responsibility. We can do what mm. we can. Mm. And I just want to jump back to the point you, 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 you uh, made um, reference to about whether government uses evidence well or not. In your years as, as government chief scientific advisor, what did that tell you about that? Um, well, I mean, I think it told me the important thing, and, uh, it, it, and that is that one really has to distinguish as a, an advisor on evidence in the broader sense that policymakers look through three lenses. So the first lens is what do I know about X or Y? Mm. The second lens, which is actually a very important one, is that people are always coming up with wonderful ideas for policy that are absolutely undeliverable. And so there is a practicality of delivering policies, and that matters rather importantly to policymakers. And then the third lens that policymakers look through is the lens of their values, their political values, their personal right. values, their social values, what they think the electorate's values are. And ultimately, policymaking is an integral of the three of them. And it was David Hume who, in a slightly different context, noted that the passions often trump the senses. Um, and so, you know, you have to recognise that there are some areas where the evidence-led uh, policymaking is absolute. Uh, do you fly a plane through a volcanic ash cloud? Uh, values mm. don't really come much into that decision. Mm. It's whether the jet engine will fry. Mm. Um, um, in the management of Ebola and Zika, again, pretty strong evidence-based approach. But when it comes to some other areas where, particularly where technology <coughs> abuts human values, mm. then mm. you may end up with a divergence. Mm. What advice would you give to Patrick uh, Valance, your successor, who's going to come here in the summer and uh, talk to us when he's got his feet under the table? I'm not going to advise Patrick through a megaphone. Yeah. I'm going to advise him by having conversations with him. <laughs> I'm delighted to hear that this is a megaphone. Um, it is. It is a headline. Well, it is live stream anyway. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, on that, let's go to some questions. Not that I have run out, but there's going to be a lot here. Right. Let's start. Let's start here on the aisle. Could people say who they are? They, as they well? will. They will. I'm not sure they do. Uh, Angela Francis, Chief Economist at Green Alliance. Uh, thank you, Sir Mark. Um, you mentioned the figure of 2.4% um, R&D spend that's yeah. the target for um, for your department to contribute to, and that's part of a wider productivity. Well, it's not my department to contribute. It's a government contribution, government con and actually it's in many departments. So this isn't all Bayes, and it's certainly not all UKRI. And, and that's part of a wider productivity um, yeah. productivity target. Um, I, it's not all your problem to solve, but I'd be really interested in your view on... Um, the funding that we have for research um, and development, which is very important but restricted to research and development, hasn't come along with a set of allied funding for business support. So we've got lots of push 
um, but not necessarily any, any pull in terms of supporting the absorptive capacity of businesses to take on this research. How does that affect what UKRI does in terms of knowledge transfer, which is another comment, another um, priority yeah. of the nurse review? Yeah. And and what it, what do you think it, it means in terms of what government should be doing on the other side to support businesses? Well, I mean, knowledge transfer is an important part of our activity, um, but there are other support mechanisms. So R&D tax credits, for example, are a, a direct uh, incentive for, for businesses. I think an important role for uh, UK research and innovation is to help to build absorptive capacity, and that's a really important issue, I think. Um, uh, there's also the um, uh, Buffini review of patient capital, because actually one of our uh, challenges is we're very good at starting companies, we're not terribly good at growing them. Um, and uh, that's partly capital, it's partly management as well. Um, and I do think that when we look at uh, one of the interesting parts of the sort of productivity puzzle, as it were, the jigsaw puzzle there, is this enormous gap between the most productive companies and the least productive companies in every sector of the economy. Um, and it, it's broader in the UK than, I think, effectively every other OECD country. Um, now, that's not all about R&D capacity or absorptive capacity. A significant fraction of it is about management and other factors. Um, so, you know, we can play our part, and I think it's very important that we as it were, talk to others across the piece, and we do, um, but it can't all be at our door for, for the reasons you imply. Um, we've got the Catapult Network, uh, the Innovate Grants are very focused on that, um, and it is, it's part of the, the sort of place agenda, the strength in places as well, uh, where we have got to build on strengths everywhere. Great. Here on the aisle. My name is Geoffrey Owen from London School of Economics. Um, one of the concerns, I think, about that have been expressed about UKRI is that it's going to lead to more centralisation of decisions about research funding and, and that it reduces the autonomy of the research councils, uh, possibly limits the emphasis or reduces the emphasis on discovery-type research. And too much emphasis on strategic priorities decided on high by ministers and, and, and um, uh, everything becoming uh, handled through this organization. In the US, I think one of their strengths of the American system is the multiple sources of research funding. We seem to be going in the opposite direction. Well, I mean, with respect, I think there's a complete misinterpretation. I mean, I know a lot of people have said it. It simply isn't true. Um, uh, how is it, do you think, we're, we're recruiting such extraordinarily strong people to be the executive chairs of the research councils? Knowledge generation, I couldn't have emphasised it more, underpins all of this. Um, there's no sense that that's happening at all. And, you know, when you talk about strategic priorities, they, 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 it's always viewed as, the, as it were, some sort of fantastic dichotomy between top-down and bottom-up. The top-down usually comes from groups of researchers agitating for particular approaches. And I illustrated that with respect to the Faraday Challenge. It was actually a bottom-up initiative initially, a group of electrochemists saying that, um, uh, you know, please support our work. Um, and that's what we've ended up doing it. But we've ended up doing it in a context where they do actually work with industry to understand some of industry's needs. Um, so, you know, basically, I, I just don't think you're right. And I think if you look again at the councils of the research councils and look at the strength of the individuals on them, you will find they are extraordinarily strong. Um, so, I mean, at the end of the day, 
um, you'll need to watch our actions and determine. But that's, that wasn't the intention of the um, uh, what's happened. And actually, again, I don't entirely agree with your characterization of the American system either, where if you look at the uh, National Science Foundation, it's an UK, it's an NIH together comprise essentially what is uh, UK research and innovation. So actually the American system has been much more aggregated for donkey's years ever since Vannevar Bush created the National Science Foundation in the 1940s. Mm. Thanks. Jeff, do you want to come back on that at all? Fine. Uh, here in the front. Thank you so much. Um, I'm Amy Banerjee. I'm a clinical academic at University College London. And um, I was very encouraged to hear your comments about um, diversity and global Britain. One of the strengths of UK research and innovation is that it's been very welcoming. But we are in the middle at the moment of an immigration disaster a controversy. And, and, and in terms of the PR, it's, it's been terrible for recruiting the brightest and the best. And as, as somebody who works in the medical school, is recruiting people from students to postdoctoral, for the first time, I'm getting asked about the immigration climate here. Yeah. And I wonder how urgently you're communicating that double speak that's going on between global Britain and an unattractive immigration climate that the, our ministers are creating at the moment. Um, you've only got to open the newspapers to see the level of concern and communication over that. And I think it does come back to our collective leadership at a time of uncertainty. We are able to recruit extraordinarily strong people from all around the world. And it's uh, our narrative, the narrative in universities, is as important as the government narrative, actually. And so people very listen very carefully to what all of us say. And if the universities say it's all terrible, people from outside will say it's all terrible. And so, you know, this is obviously politically highly salient at the moment. Um, and uh, I think that we each have to do what we can do in order to make sure that this is, uh, remains an excellent environment. What would you like the new Home Secretary to say? Uh, again, I, I learnt not to advise the government through a megaphone either. Uh, over here, and then I'm coming to the, uh, the further back. Mm. Stephanie Matheson, Sense About Science. So Mark, when we're set here again in a year's time, which three things would you most like to be able to tell us that you and UKRI have achieved? That's a sort of any what? questions type question at the no. end. I, I gave you the not list. Not at the end. No, no, no that's it's, the it's list you've been set. But no, it's not the list what, you've been set. What would a, a good first year look like? Well, a good first year would look like an organisation that is working well together. Um, it is actually achieving all of that. Um, we won't get it completed in the first three years, but that was not set <coughs> top down. That was where we've arrived at through our own internal discussions, through working with uh, the government department that ultimately is responsible for the money. Um, and, uh, you know, it gets very invidious saying, what are the three things? I gave you the list. That's what we're going to work on. Okay, uh, over here on the aisle. Um, Sarah Chater, UCL. Um, I was delighted to hear you mention the areas of research interest in the context yeah. of the Strategic Priorities Fund. Um, could you tell us what else you might um, see UKRI doing to encourage academic policy engagement and particularly perhaps to increase the flow between academia and, and policy making? Okay, I, mean, I think that's a very interesting question. And actually, it, it, I, th I think it's a role that the Institute for Government could have. And I think probably, you know, I will, we'll talk about it with Bronwyn. I think it, actually, at the end of the day, it's about convening. You know, at the end of the day, 
you can do as much top-down as you want, as it were, but unless people will actually respond and say, this is interesting and we want to work on it, nothing will happen. Which is why engagement with all of the communities, the academic community, the business community, uh, and uh, you know, academic communities come in universities, but they come in research institutes, they come in other environments as well. So I think it's actually about convening the people, as it were, who have the questions in government, and um, uh, the researchers who might be interested in asking the problems. And I think at the end of the day, you bring people together, and that's something that I've long experienced of doing. It was one of the ways the Wellcome Trust got things done, actually, by bringing groups of people together and challenging them to have the imagination to do things in better ways. Um, and one very specific example was that the way human genetics was done was on a rather competitive basis where you'd get three groups of people saying they wanted to work out the genes associated with a particular disease. And by the way, please don't send my grant to be refereed by the other two competing groups. Um, and we said, actually, this isn't the best way to do it. You will all produce underpowered um, studies that don't provide complete answers. And out of that, we mm. was born a, a, a case control consortium which actually transformed for the better the way that sort of research was done. And so I think it is about convening. And coming back to your question, um, there are many economic questions that are of extreme interest to government. And actually, the LSE, at least you know, significant parts of it, have been very good at working together to help answer some of those questions. And so you know, it's a mixture. There's pretty interesting economics in there. Great. Now, here on the other side of the aisle, Daniel Zeichner, Member of Parliament for Cambridge. You responded quite strongly to the top-down question a few minutes ago, but I have to say um, the messages I'm getting from some of the institutions in Cambridge very much reflect that concern that there will be more interference, more strings attached. Um, obviously, the, the, the Cambridge innovation system is sometimes a touch more idiosyncratic. What reassurance can you give people that, that their fears are unfounded? Well, I, I mean, the short answer is I was not long ago giving a talk in the Laboratory for Molecular Biology, seeing the extraordinary work they were doing. Uh, you know, why would you interfere with something that works so effectively? I mean, there's just no question about that. Um, I had the privilege of seeing Richard Henderson receive his Nobel Prize last year. I, I've learned quite a lot about cryo-electron microscopy since then. We're not going to muck around with that. We'd be mad to. Okay, over here, just behind the aisle. <laughs> uh, yep. Thanks. Hi, thank you, Sir Mark. I'm Simon Burrell from Involve. Um, given our name, yeah. you'd, you'd uh, imagine we're delighted to hear what you said about public engagement. Um, I've kind of got a bit of a double-headed question. One, yeah. kind of the public adds value. I mean, I realise you said the innovation pipeline isn't linear, it's, it's very complex, but the public's value is very different in the kind of basic research as opposed to at the yeah. innovation end. So I'm interested in kind of how you see that, what value you see the public kind of through the pipeline. And secondly, um, the more complex and controversial an area gets, the more difficult it is for people to think about how we might involve the public because it becomes more scary. So how do you, how, what work are you going to be doing to support um, the culture of academia to, to really think about bringing the public in at an early stage rather than kind of as an add-on at the end? Yes, uh, well I mean, actually, the, your mention of involve reminds me that actually I should also acknowledge, and you were talking about the diversity of the funding landscape, that uh, I mean particularly in biomedicine but in other areas as well, we have an extraordinarily strong charitable sector as well. Um, and uh, I had uh, a session with the Association of Medical Research Charities the other night to talk to them. 
Um, and uh, it's a really important part of their landscape. And of course, one of the things they particularly bring is relationships with, in the case of disease-specific uh, medical research charities, they have very strong links to their communities. And of course, it, it, medicine par excellence is an area where uh, research meets values. Um, and you sometimes get rather different views because privacy is obviously a huge issue at the moment and Facebook has made that even more salient. Um, but you actually do have to listen to the people whose data matters the most in a way. And if you have cancer, you want your data to be used to improve diagnosis and treatment. Um, and some of the people that are sort of strongly opposed to uh, the respectful and consented use of data for research don't necessarily think they have anything personally to benefit from it. So I think we've got to listen to everyone and recognise there is no singular public view on all of these things. And of course, you know, when you look at our regulatory environment, actually we're extremely good at regulating sensitive biomedical issues and the HFEA's work and then Parliament's work on mitochondrial, prevention of mitochondrial disease was an example of the very best way to do that sort of thing. How will we involve the public? Well, I mean, there's, again, there's no single right answer to that um, because people respond to different types of engagement. But I think the first thing to say is the word engagement, and it goes back to the work that was done many years ago um, at the Royal Society, is, is this isn't the deficit model. It's not about, you know, we're going to educate people about things they ought to know about because we need to listen both ways. Um, and... Um, a question I frequently was asked when I was the government chief scientist is, um, you know, why don't politicians listen more to science and uh, learn more about science? And the, my response was, well, also, we need to learn a bit more about politics as well. Um, so we will engage in many ways. I think we'll think about citizen science, though you can only answer some questions that way. Um, but again, if you're interested in social science, well, it's all about people and you need to work with people. Okay. Next one along. Uh, James Kidner from Improbable, we're a tech startup who do large-scale simulation. Um, could you talk a little bit more about the 2.4% figure? Because we know from poor Mrs. Rudd that, that um, targets are useful tools but can come back and bite you. To what extent do you feel that your feet are going to be roasted in front of the fire if you don't reach that target? And, and where did it come from? You know, what, are, what are comparable figures in other countries? Well, I mean, the comparable figures in other countries are that 2.4% is just before, below the OECD mean. So, I mean, there's, no, there's lots of data on that. Uh, secondly, it's not us meeting the target. It's the government meeting the target. This is a government target. Um, but it's obviously a target that I think that the research and innovation community are pleased by. Um, uh, the way we will reach it, because this isn't something that will happen overnight, is be by, as it were, continuing to provide the analytic base that justifies it. And so it is actually about looking at what happens to business R&D. Um, it is about that word impact, but of course um, impact takes a very long time to measure and it's very difficult to attribute impact to single interventions. And so I think what we need to measure quite accurately is outcomes and outputs. So we spend a lot of time on inputs and I do think that actually for all of us, what the taxpayer isn't buying is an announcement about how many fellowships we've funded. It's what's happened to the people that have had those fellowships. Um, and so how do, how do you measure this? Well, I think that well, there's only one way to do it, and that's to collect data. Um, but, you know, if people want to say, for example, justify the effectiveness of centres for doctoral training, it isn't unreasonable to ask, well, what happens to the people that have been through those programmes? Um, 
I think it is important to understand actually what the flows are. And uh, of course, that's the power of administrative data. And uh, we're working quite closely with the Office of National Statistics on that. And a good example is the LEO database, which Longitudinal Educational Outcomes Database, which starts linking uh, schooling with further higher education with then tax revenues. These are really interesting uh, databases. Mm. And um, so we do have to collect data. I mean, it's not simply good enough to say, give us more of X or Y, if we can't then ultimately provide the evaluative evidence as to what they do. And, and it's actually slightly bizarre in a way that academics who are very rigorous about collecting evidence in support of their research aren't so interested in evidence about what works in terms of research funding. <laughs> okay, great. Um, here, on the, here on the aisle, and I'm now coming, there's still a lot of hands up, but we should get everyone in. Go on. I'm Bruce Lloyd from London South Bank University. One area that you didn't specifically discuss was the role and relationship with military research. How does that work into the structure and the agenda that you've outlined? Very interesting question. It is an interesting question. I mean, our, our job is not to do the R&D of the Ministry of Defence, so that's not our job. Um, but I think it's fair to say that the uh, there's a very s strong overlap between a great deal of research and, you know, dual application, if you like, work that can be done for defence, for security, um, and other aspects. And so, you know, many areas of technology are important, and part of our work is around the um, security and resilience of our populations. Um, and there are lots of people that work in areas that are germane to that. Um, what we don't fund is <coughs> weapons programmes. Well, they are a perfect example. So, so, so drones, why would we not uh, fund engineering work on drones, which have mm. extraordinary applications for transport? And of course, in a way, what you're reflecting is the fact that a world where, as it were, defence procurement was a closed world, where they procured from you know, defence suppliers, uh, it is a very different world where, you know, drones which have clearly huge civilian applications also have the potential to be both used and abused um, in the uh, security and defence space. Uh, but, but it would be very odd to say we don't work on drones because, support work on drones because it might be used for X or Y. Um, and I think it, you know, it turns on the more general point, um, which I think is why societal engagement is so important, that one of the things that the research and innovation community does is through discovering knowledge, uh, it invents technologies. And we all know that every technology is neither in or of itself a good thing or a bad thing. It's all about the individual uses. And there, we should participate in the debate, but we should participate in the debate on the basis that we are each single citizens and we need to collectively decide in a plural democracy what are the limits. And you can see that around, I mean, this is hugely important at the moment around uh, the use of all our data, which we have voluntarily given away uh, to, um, uh, you know, many technology firms. Here on the front. Thank you. Uh, Catherine Haddon, I'm a senior fellow here at the Institute of Government. I'm very pleased to hear you talking about what works in terms of mechanisms of engagement yeah. that work. Uh, we have a piece of work coming out in about a month's time about how 
governments engages with academia and what kind of mechanisms work. And we've been working with the AHRC for a number of years looking at academics and how to teach them skills and understanding of yeah. policy makers. Is there more we could be doing in the reverse of talking to, ac to, to governments about how it engages with academia, talking to policy makers, helping them become more intelligent um, customers of all of this? I, I think undoubtedly, and I mean, my impression is that's something that actually you do do. Um, but I mean, that's also obviously a critical role of the network of chief scientific advisors. That's uh, Patrick's job now, working with a, you know, a very good network of advisors. Um, and it is about, as it were, that two-way communication. And I think how, I mean, that's the challenge for uh, businesses, the challenge for government as well. It's how to become a good and appropriate customer for technology. And it is one of the big challenges because actually if you are a, a firm that's sort of somewhere down the productivity index and you really haven't got very good IT, actually saying go out and buy something, that's a really hard ask because being a good customer for very complicated technology is not an easy thing to do. And I think maybe there is a sort of gap in the market for the architects of these people who can actually act as the intermediary between someone who wants an IT system and the plethora of people out there who are trying to sell it to them and the inability of a customer to work out whether they're being sold snake oil or something that's going to you know, really help their business. Um, and I think it applies to government. It's why I think it's difficult for government to implement technology. It's why it's been difficult for everyone to implement technology. Just look at the disasters that have been expensive disasters over many years <coughs> in IT yeah. systems. Um, and it's because I think it's just difficult to be a customer for this. It's mm. an interesting point. Um, it, it's a, right, right here, and then I'm going to uh, come to the back. <coughs> where Still have a good from Commonwealth Partnership for Technology. As <coughs> you started with uh, the form should follow the function, and yes. I suppose in the next few months the narrative of the function, distinct function, will emerge. But, <laughs> I, um, yes, I presume we'll uh, talk about one particular aspect of function, but carry yeah, on, yes. Exactly. But in relation to that, uh, in our group, yeah. Commonwealth Chief Scientists, etc., made a lot of use of your foresight exercises. Yes. <coughs> Will that foresight um, related to spotting signals, not necessarily from the bottom, from the top, be one of the guiding functions <coughs> in your, in your uh, uh, new council? And uh, would that focus on value of data and the landscape with it? Yeah. Will there be a chief data scientist, as it was in OSTP? Um, Will there be a chief scientist as in Government Accountability Office? Yes, I mean, I think that those are questions that should really be directed to Patrick Valance rather than to me, because I'm not the government chief scientific advisor now, but uh, the horizon scanning and foresight in government is conducted through the Government Office for Science. Um, but obviously, UK research and innovation, as part of its everyday activities, does horizon scanning and foresight work on, you know, where, where are the trends in research, what's happening in research, what are the cutting edges nationally, internationally. Um, and that continues to be very important, and that's part of our convening function. Um, but I'm afraid hindsight is hard enough, uh, let alone foresight. And so, you know, predicting the future is actually something that we, it, it, in a way, it's all, almost about thinking about scenarios. Thank you. Right, right at the back. <coughs> um, Simon Judge from the government finance function, one of the 26, I think, functions yeah. within, within government. Uh, we keep inventing new ones. Um, just wanted to pick up your comment about the education system. Do you think the changing research 
landscape has any implications for the structure of what people study at university and and postgraduate research, which yeah. you know I I think is still you know quite a narrow area. You then go and do quite detailed research in a particular area. Does that produce the sort of research scientists you need in order to operate in this collaborative way? Um, yes, I think there are clear links. I mean, for example. Um, if you just look at, and I think there, there is a response in the system, um, it's hard to think that there's almost any area of um, research and innovation that doesn't require much better um, technological literacy around uh, uh, data science. And uh, again, if actually if you look back, and it's worth looking at the industrial strategy, it's an interesting document. Um, there are the four big grand challenges across the industrial strategy. And if you look at what those are, they're clean growth, healthy ageing, the future of transport, and then one, the fourth one is of a different kind to those other three, it's artificial intelligence and data science. Um, and I think those are quite interesting themes, and I think if you look at the industrial strategy, it's not a picking winners industrial strategy, it's an industrial strategy that sets the sort of infrastructure conditions for growth and productivity. Um, but you know, if we're going to make contributions, it does actually point to the fact that a too narrow education, well, we, it's, again, there isn't one size fits all. We need people who are deep technological experts in discovering new ways of doing machine learning. So we require you know, the deepest mathematicians, number theorists, all of that. Uh, but we also need people that are more what's sometimes described as T-shaped. They're actually quite, they've got depth in one area, but they're broad in their understanding. And it does seem to me that what does a university provide? It's an education. And an education, part of that should be broad. Um, but I think that, you know, our job is not, we're not the Department for Education. Um, and again, you know, the, 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 we're dealing with, it. so all of this is a systems engineering problem. You know, UKRI is not the sole solution to uh, UK's productivity needs. It's not the sole solution to our education needs. It goes back to the question about how do we get to 2.4%. It's not all through uh, the research and innovation part of the system. Education has to play its part. Um, uh, training, skills, they all have their parts to play. All right, we have two minutes left. Uh, and I think we had two hands up. Let's, if you make it a micro question, a really crisp one there, and I'm going to take them both at once. Uh, my name's Simon Briscoe. I'm a statistical data science consultant. Could you just say a little bit more about what UKRI might do to, I would say, improve the data environment? So big data, data sharing, and then open data. Okay, great. You mentioned ADRM, but I think the, the environment a few years ago was rather more positive than it is now. Thank you very much indeed. Let me take the second one as well. Uh, David Bogle. UCL, I was uh, interested in your comment about uh, the different ways that R&D is done uh, in services, for example. We're talking about going to the 2.4%. Yeah. Uh, the key out a key outcome is the people, as we've talked about. Are we, uh, how, how can we, together, I think universities have a role in this, but I think the UKRI yeah. has a role as well in increasing the intensity of research through the people that we send out uh, and the researchers, because it's the way we train the researchers, it's not just education. I speak as chair of the yeah. Concord App for the Career, uh, the review of the okay, Concord App for the Career Researchers. Will you forgive me? So, okay, yeah. thanks. Right. thanks. Okay. And, and big data. Yeah, okay, well look, so on the big data question, um, 
It takes two to tango on this. The community, the businesses that use data have got to show they're trustworthy. So the environment is related to how the public perceive their data are used. And uh, once you've lost trust, it takes a long while to recover it. Um, and so everyone's got to play together on this. If we want to maximize the benefits, then we've got to minimize the potential harms. And that involves behaving in trustworthy fashions, actually. Uh, so it's for all of us to work on that. Um, and I'm not sure I really caught the question in what you were saying. Um, but I think that, if you like the more general point, and I was talking to postdocs in uh, Glasgow yesterday, is that it's really important that when we look after postdocs and researchers in general, we give them proper, proper continuous professional development and recognize that actually a researcher who is numerate, literate, skeptical and analytic, understands statistics, can communicate effectively, those are the skills for all walk of life. And if there is a, a community that views it as a failure if someone goes, doesn't go on to be an academic, then that's a disgrace. Because actually, if we want people to do research, we've got to recognize that they should contribute to all walks of life. Thank you. We're going to have to stop there. Terrific question. Thank you for coming. Can you join me in thanking Mark Wolpert?